This is the Gonzo Movie Reviews, the Die Hard Specials. I'm Alex Shaw. This is Die Hard with a Vengeance. We're back with the third of four Die Hard movie reviews. With me once again is Neil Taylor of Game Burst. Hello, Neil. Yippee-ki-yay. And Matt Ramsey, better known on the DC forums as Matt Harrier. Hello again, Matt. Good evening. Our sincerest apologies for the rambling nature of the review last week, but considering the source material, you're lucky it wasn't two minutes long. Uh, How would we currently place them in order of personal favouritism? Because obviously, you know, there's still room for Matt to prefer four to any of the above. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. There really isn't. <laughs> That's stretching it. You might like it more than two. You might. It's feasible. I know a lot of people who did. I think I'd go Die Hard. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yep. Two. And the fourth one is dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say three and one are pretty much equal for me, but I would maybe just put three above one. And then two and then four. I can see that with Vengeance. I really can. Yeah, I've got some reasons I'll be going into soon. Matt? Uh, one, three, two at this stage. Fair enough. This is the only Die Hard film based on an original screenplay. The first two films were adapted from novels, and Live Free or Die Hard was adapted from a magazine article. That's the state we're in today, isn't it? <laughs> People don't read books anymore. <laughs> it was written solely by Jonathan Hensley and was originally titled Simon Says. He then adapted that script into the third Die Hard film. Unfortunately, while in the grand scheme of Hollywood scriptwriters who ever get their break, Hensley's career has been pretty prolific. He's never matched Die Hard 3, and he did, however, write Armageddon, the original draft for The Saint, which ended up heavily rewritten. Uh, The Saint, by the way, has always been my dictionary definition of average. If you took every film that was ever made, it sits exactly in the middle of them. There's a, a billion crap films and a billion films that are average or better but this is the exact it is equidistant from either extreme so the saint six nets to die hard two then uh no but die hard two is way better than the saint i mean it's <laughs> you, you've got to have to understand how how what how bad bad films are i mean we don't usually watch them because usually you tend to t- sort of turn off films that you think are bad but if you've ever no, hang on hang on when we talk about bad films, films that are, are talking- really like flesh crawlingly bad oh we're talking starship troopers too bad not sort God, of no, bad Oh, do you mean Tremors bad? Tremors bad in that sort of cheesy B movie kind. We're of doing thing. it again. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just clarifying my point. Tremors is way above average. Tremors is great. Well, yeah, Tremors was a bad choice. And Maybe if Tremors you, beyond. And then if you're going to use a Starship Troopers film as an example of a bad film, you've got to use Starship Troopers three. Yeah. It's even worse than two. It's uh, appalling. Wow, that takes some beans. Nothing to recommend it at all. Okay, tell you what, I was watching, and this is actually, this falls in with Gonzo, actually. I was watching Batman the movie the other day, the Adam West one. I couldn't get through it. I couldn't. It's appalling. And, you know, it's kind of charming for a bit, but to actually sit through 90 minutes of that stuff, it begins to wear you down. Around about the halfway mark, I've just got to turn it off. I will resume that as and when we talk about the Burton Batmans, but I don't think we can do an episode entirely around that that show. That film can, can, is can I, fucking horrible. Can I ask you, did you get to the shark repellent? Well, of course I got to the shark repellent. That's in the first three minutes. But, I can't remember. I never want to see that movie again. Oh, God. Okay, right. So, yeah, The Saint, absolutely in the middle. Uh, 
he also wrote Jumanji, but he also wrote Next and Welcome to the Jungle. No, not that one. The bad one. Many of the young Indiana Jones chronicles, which I think, Neil, you know a lot more about than me. I've seen a few of them. Some of them are quite good. And he also wrote the bland, Travolta-centric 2004 version of The Punisher. So, yeah, it didn't exactly set the world on fire. But like I said, in in terms of Hollywood scriptwriters, 99% of them don't ever get a break. And he's had huge amounts of breaks. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and and also, uh, I rate Die Hard with a Vengeance in terms of scripting. So, uh, you know, a, a lot, actually. There's some really, truly good moments in that script. There's some fantastic stuff. But um, there's also a few moments where you go, really? <laughs> okay, we'll get to the really bits in a bit. Um, I would go f- so far as to say this is almost the equal of the original. The first is better made and a more focused film. But in the same way that I kind of prefer Aliens to Alien, only the breadth of a shadow exists between the two in terms of which one's my favourite. And it comes down to which one I'd like to put on more often. Plus, Die Hard 1 is usually a Christmas tradition and 3 has no such restrictions. This has now become a very rare type of film due to the subject matter. Manhattan is in jeopardy. There are explosives going off all around. Even the children are apparently not safe. The emergency services have their hands full, and the financial district turns out to be the real target. You could not make a movie like this today, as Die Hard 4 proved so aptly. Explosions and New York are not a cocktail any studio will taste, and it's going to be a long time before anybody mixes one of these films again. Yeah, I don't. I think it's going to be a very long time before we see anything that does or replicates what Die Hard with a Vengeance does, where you have a madman bombing a city. Mm. Specifically uh, New York. New York, especially, yeah. And the two towers do actually feature quite prominently in this as well. They're not, so they're not key uh, locations, but they're there in the background. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Bend down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match here. But at night, it's a different world. Go out and find a girl. Come on, come on and dance all night. Despite the heat, it'll be alright. And babe, don't you know it's a pity the days can't be like the nights in the summer, in the city, in the summer, in the city. So let's look at what they did to bring it back to glory from the mundane, formulaic Die Hard 2. Firstly, John McTiernan returned. And he brought with him a greater understanding of McLean's character and the situations to place him in to get the most out of this guy. McLean starts off the film in a groggy stupor, depressed and resentful, and baffled as to his involvement. It's the first Die Hard to become a buddy movie, with the follow-up unsuccessfully trying to follow in those lines. Zeus is an ideal foil for John. He's just as argumentative, yet... Despite his surly nature, he's a man of principle who helps because it's clear that that's the right thing to do. They bitch at one another constantly, always believing they know better than the other about their given situations. And there is indeed a tinge of racism from Zeus. Whatever kind of hard life he's lived, he doesn't trust or want any help from a white man. Yet his first act is to prevent a serious interracial altercation between John and the angry residents of Harlem. He then has to endure the fallout of his decision not to turn a blind eye, summing up the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, fairly perfectly. And for the first and only time, John is not surrounded by law officers who consider him to be a nuisance. John is on home turf at last. 
this is his team and while they heap disapproval on him for his depression fueled self destructive lifestyle there's a familiarity and warmth among them evident in the quieter scenes these people do respect John as a detective and listen to what he has to say it's a refreshing change from the almost pathological unwillingness to cooperate from the LAPD in Die Hard 1 and the Dulles Airport security in Die Hard 2 and whoever the fuck was in charge in Die Hard 4 discuss <laughs> That's well no it's clear I mean the clearest scene of that is um, when John's in the police van on the way to Harlem and just the conversations that are going on these normal almost normal mundane conversations you've got the captain asking how Holly is you have him joking with the one of the guys about his lottery numbers and his mm. badge number which mm. actually up, plays maybe, into yeah. a scene later so and you know you get the this you know the one copper that doesn't you get the feeling doesn't particularly like John as well mm. you, you actually feel that you know what these guys have worked together these guys know each other yeah whereas in the other the other films it's basically just sort of John comes in tells them what's going on no one listens to him even in Die Hard 2 it's actually annoying how much they don't listen to him it's like he's, he's, he's telling them okay right this is the situation. These are my theories on it. And they're like, get the fuck out of this room, John. You're just a menace. It's like, what? <laughs> Even no, when I'm he's like, right, they won't listen to him. And, you know, I didn't mention this last week because it didn't occur to me, but it's occurred to me now. What the hell was John doing in Washington, D.C.? Uh, Holly's parents live in Washington, D.C. John went out to Washington to bring in the kids with him. And Holly was coming out the day, uh, day afterwards. Both of them were living in LA, LA at the time. Holly was coming out a day afterwards uh, on the plane. And obviously that happened. Okay, okay, fair enough. And it also, I love the fact because they just do not mention Die Hard 2 in the, in with a vengeance at no. all. It's no yeah, they, references. They mention the Nakatomi incident, but no one ever mentions all that shit that went on in Wash- uh, Washington. Which, I wonder if they would mention it again in... I, I haven't seen it for a long, long time, but in Die Hard 4, it takes place in Washington. So you'd imagine they'd be like, you've done the city a great service, Mr. McLean, but would you fuck off out of this office? Yeah, no, in fact, they don't make a reference to any of the other Die Hards in 4. Of course they don't. Which makes me feel like well, we'll talk about this next week, but it's like watching an action film where they've cut and pasted the name John McClane over the name of the hero. Yeah. It was Agent Michael Scarn originally. There is a palpable tension in the first half of the film for several reasons. Firstly, you start with an unexpected explosion which happens in the middle of a song. That's an action that breaks up all kinds of movie protocols. Far more often you get a huge musical build-up, a half-second pause, and then the explosion so that everyone can brace themselves and the effects money is well spent on something everyone's going to pay attention to. Secondly, it hits the ground running with a now ongoing situation that we and the police only know minimal details about. This mystery is sustained expertly as Simon finds increasingly smaller flaming hoops for McLean to jump through. In Die Hard 1, we see the professional villains do their thing. In Die Hard 2, it seems a little more cliched with henchmen brutally murdering innocent civilians with smug one-liners. Remember that bit in the church where he's like, it feels like part of me is dying with this place. And they go, yeah, you're right about that. And then shoot him point blank with arcing ropes of gore flying in all directions. And he falls slow motion into the pews. And also, if you note in Die Hard, this particular Die Hard with Avengers, there is no gore. Yeah, well, very little. Um, But there's blood, but there's not what you'd call gore. Depends on the version you've seen. We'll talk about that in a bit. 
in Die Hard 3, you have no idea what's going on to begin with. You're just stuck with McLean trying to simply live through each situation that goes away as soon as you realize it's a robbery and the second half of the movie becomes more of a retelling of Die Hard outside the confines of the building. It does manage to recapture the claustrophobia once they hit the boat. John becomes desperate, battered, wounded, and covered in filth and blood, limping and doing that thing where he stares wildly, moving frantically through the corridors to prevent calamity once again in a way that he never quite did in Die Hard 2. You know, he's got that mad look on his face just after yeah. he's, he's uh, dispatched Targo. Michael Kamen, back for one last time, even starts to riff on themes from the original, even using the moment that Hans falls from the tower to the point when the bomb appears on the boat. So, yeah, it's definitely a film with two halves, and the first half is better. But the second is still taut, funny, pacey, and far more like Die Hard than the other two. No, I'd agree with that. And it's, it, does t- it does feel like a bit of a movie in two halves. You, you saw there's a slight gear change about mm. halfway through that you, you just subtly pick on. It's not a major thing, mm. but it does feel like, hmm... I think we've got away from the, the original script here. Yeah, well, no, the, that is the exact point, basically. It's, it's just after he's been briefed in the uh, 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 van and that he's told that it's a Gruber, and then you get to, to meet Gruber for the first time. I believe the original Simon Says diverged at that point, so it's, it's been said that the first half of the movie is pretty much word for word. I do, I do love that moment where he's briefed and you go, his other name is, you know, whatever, Gruber. And you're like, Peter oh, Creed. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Creed Gruber. And you just feel like with McLean going, oh, oh shit. shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, brain teaser time. You have a five-gallon jug, a three-gallon jug, and one minute to tell me how to get exactly four gallons into these here scales, or this podcast will explode. Go. We're fucked. Because even I didn't understand that bit. You have to cooperate on this one, gentlemen. Fill the five. Fill the five. Three. Yep. Three. Two. Refill the five, top up the three, which leaves four in the five, I think. Hang on. Say that again. Fill the five. Yep. Tip into the three, leaving two in the five. Yes. Refill the five, mm-hmm. top up the three, removing one liter, leaving four liters in the five. Possibly. Possi- hang on, no, no, no. Hang on. <laughs> you fill the five and then pull that into the three. The three's full. So you then, leaving you two what? in the po- yeah. two in the five. You got twenty seconds. I never even understood. Shit, they're playing kids games in a park. <laughs> they're dead. We're dead. I didn't even get this bit in the movie. The five I just gallon jug, it. Pour it to the three-gallon <laughs> jug. Remain the two gallons in the five. Empty the three-gallon jug. Pour the two gallons from the five into the empty three. Fill the five-gallon jug again. Pour one gallon from the five-gallon into the three-gallon jug. Remain to four and the five-gallon. Boom. <sighs> one second. <laughs> one second. <laughs> yeah, I kind of missed a bit. I'll on do that. that uh, I'll, I'll do that a little bit slower. You fill the five-gallon jug. You pour it into the three-gallon jug. It remains two gallons in the five. Then you empty the three-gallon jug, so you got two gallons in the five and nothing in the three. You pour the two gallons from the five into the three, which leaves a space of one there. Then you fill the five-gallon jug again. You pour one of the gallons into the fi- into the three-gallon jug, which leaves four remaining in the five. Because oh, there's yeah. one gallon of space which you need to be able to fill it up exactly. It's the rather important stage there, didn't they? <laughs> or there's another one. Uh, you fill the three-gallon jug, you pour it into the five... You fill the three again and pour it into the five, which leaves one gallon remaining inside the three gallon. You empty the five completely. You pour the one gallon into the empty five gallon. 
Then you fill the three a third time, and then empty it into the five again. So there's a few ways of doing it. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd have been able to do that in the time that they were given originally. <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to. <laughs> <laughs> I know I wouldn't. <laughs> what clues did John need to work out that the federal bank employees were not who they said they were? Well, one was the badge number. Well, yeah, that's the biggest and most obvious. The other one was, he says, dog, uh, dogs and cats. Really. Yes. I'm not sure. I didn't there are two more. One of them is excusable. The other one is, is definitely suspicious. Uh, one of the, he after he uh, said that he wanted to use the stairs, he said he uses the lift all the time. A lift is a European expression. We probably wouldn't have noticed it so much, but obviously for John, they'd be like, huh, European. Obviously, he could just be a European employee of the federal bank. But oh, yeah. the fact that he, get, he went with dogs and cats. But just behind him, on his right, the guy looking at John's giving him this really creepy fucking look. Which, so all John has to do is look at him to know that something's up. But yeah, of course, the 6991 badge is the, is the big one. This is another indicator of how close John is with his workmate. His friend Rick Walsh, like half of the New York cops, plays the lottery with his badge number. John can even remember the number, 6991. The fact that none of these reserve cops are apparently familiar with the custom, and the fact that Otto is wearing Rick's badge is enough evidence for John to murder all of them in a desperate elevator struggle. Yeah, it's not often you see that one, is it? A gunfight in an elevator. Literally in the elevator, yeah. not one person in an elevator, the other people outside. <laughs> them all in the same place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's 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 pretty grim. Uh, this is one of the main bits that actually was edited for the UK version. When he shoots the last guy, who I believe is Otto, um, it's close up, point blank. And in the unedited American version, there's spray of gore flies up over uh, McLean's face. Uh, which okay, course, I think I have the English version then. Yeah, I believe you do, because um, I had I used to have the R1 version. It's completely different. Okay, here's some little factoids. On the DVD commentary, screenwriter Jonathan Hensley says the idea for the film's plot came to him when he imagined what would happen if one of his childhood friends, who was injured after Hensley threw a rock at him, decided to seek revenge on him as an adult. It was also supposed to be Lethal Weapon 4. That would have made a good Lethal Weapon 4. It would have been a better Lethal Weapon 4 than Lethal Weapon 4 was. Yeah. Hensley says that the first hour of the film is his original Simon Says script word for word. He only changed the characters and the script so that it would actually feel like part of the Die Hard series. So the protagonist in Hensley's original Simon Says script was a New York cop named Alex Bradshaw. And the character that became Zeus Carver was a woman. Now, here's interesting. The film studio wanted Hensley to change Zeus's race from black to either white or Asian. Racist motherfuckers. <laughs> Why Asian? If white... Eh? you got to snare the Asian crowd. Yeah, but you couldn't have had the King of Cool then. Well, that, of course. It's perfect casting. Do you know who was originally going to be um, uh, Zeus? Lawrence Fishburne. Yes, well done. And he oh, turned yes. it down. And then he changed his mind, but Samuel L. Jackson had already gotten the part. <laughs> Snooze, you lose. <laughs> That's actually quite funny. I, I can't imagine that role as Lawrence Fishburne. Um, I don't know. Think about him in um, Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood. Yeah, I mean, yeah he made very good Yeah, he's a very similar character. But not as funny. John, no. Lawrence Fishburne is not funny, and and the this is like the prototype Samuel L. Jackson character, apart from maybe Jules in Pulp Fiction. This is the shouty, angry, sweary, 
great comedy delivery, but also very dramatic and intense Samuel L. Jackson that we all know and love. This is what we wanted to see in Star Wars, Frank. I was about to say the anti-Mace Windu. Yeah, I was saying, I was watching it, like, Mace Windu doesn't do or say anything. He never even gets angry. He's far too bloody serene to be a Jedi. He would have been better being Lando's dad. Just being this really angry coward. (laughs) Seriously. Get your fucking ass in here, Lando! Okay, Dad, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. He'd have made a better Sith. Yeah, yeah, of course. Anything other than just a really boring monk would have been good. Yes. I think the the only reason I can't imagine Lawrence Fishburne as Zeus is I've watched too much CSI now. I think think Fat Morpheus, as I call him now. Yeah, cake-eating Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, do you know who else is fat at the moment? Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. <laughs> well noted. I, I, unless that was just a guess, I'm assuming you've been checking my Twitter today. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking through, I don't know how I got to it, but um, oh no, it was to do with the saint, I think. I just clicked on the saint and then I clicked on Kilmer and thought, what does he look like now? It, oh, chunkified doesn't begin to describe what's happened to Val Kilmer. Are you sure that's not him in fat suit makeup for a film or something? Check oh, out no. what he looks like on the IMDb. His first page he looks like he looks like he's in fat suit makeup you're absolutely right comically fat he he used to be hot and now he's not (laughs) he's not because he acts like a wardrobe for a start yeah he was the perfect choice to play kit in the remake of Knight Rider though oh yeah wooden yes you (laughs) exactly wooden kit mechanical um but yeah no so yeah he's he's podgy and Lawrence Fishburne's put just piled on the pies I mean that's fine but um, it, it, it does make me it's, it's, it makes me worry because I feel like I'm reaching middle age myself I mean I'm only 30 but I feel like I'm reaching middle age and if I don't get my ass on a Stairmaster I'm going to be Val Kilmer which <laughs> used to be something positive You'd be like oh yeah Joanne Wally bring it on <laughs> she looks alright these days but uh, he doesn't there appears to be a disapproval of psychiatrists in the Die Hard films. In the original, a writer claims that the Nakatomi hostages will have begun developing a Stockholm Syndrome, although I, I, I believe he calls it Helsinki Syndrome, and let's find out if that's real or not. No, they made it up. <laughs> There's no such thing as Helsinki Syndrome, folks. Either way, it's a Stockholm Syndrome-style bond with their captors around about the time that Hans shoots Ellis. Uh, in this one, Die Hard 3, the psychologist Fred Schiller, who incidentally was named after anyone? Friedrich Schiller. Well done! 18th century who wrote, wrote French Ode poet. To Joy. Who wrote Ode, the lyric Ode <laughs> to Joy. Um, <laughs> deconstructs Simon's obsessive stalker in a way that would be pretty bang on the money if Gruber wasn't running a scam on the police. You know, when we were watching this, uh, my wife kept saying, that wouldn't happen, that wouldn't happen. Uh, she, but she works for the police, so she was saying that you know there's no way that they'd play Simon's game. They'd you know they'd they'd start wiretaps. And I said they did a wiretap. Well, they they did do a trace. He, he he ran rings around them. What would they do then? And she went, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably let innocent civilians get blown up. Yeah. I guess uh, if 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 they just said no, we're not playing your stupid game. We aren't going to negotiate and slam the phone down. Then the the bomb w- would have gone off. Um, just outside of Wall Street anyway, and then the police would have been blamed for that if it, if it got out. Because Simon, you know, was pretty much determined that that bomb was going to go off because the entire plan revolved around that. They didn't know that. 
the scene where John McClane wears a sandwich board that says, I hate niggers, was filmed in Washington Heights in order to avoid any conflict or riot in Harlem. Very wise. The street signs in Audubon Avenue between 173rd and 177th Street, along with several store awnings and signs, were replaced to replicate Harlem. Additionally, the sandwich board that Willis wore was... I hate everybody. Yes. It was originally blank. The slogan was digitally added to the board during post-production. Nice safe way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at it carefully, it's it's seamless. I didn't even believe they had that kind of digital um, t- touching up. Already. It is better than the truck surfing later. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or indeed, plane surfing much later. The original. Uh, let's not talk about it. <laughs> Not for a week. The original plan was to have the villains burgle the Metropolitan Museum of Art, an idea not used here, but which appears in John McTiernan's film... Did he do the Thomas Crown Affair remake? He did. Rookie guess for me. Indeed. (laughs) The Russian title for Die Hard in the first three movies, but apparently not the fourth, is A Hard Nut to Crack. A Hard Nut to Crack with a vengeance (laughs) (laughs) how do they literally translate with a vengeance that makes no sense or was it a hard nut to crack nut harder I don't (laughs) (laughs) that's a different film (laughs) you know now would you mean what I say would you understand what I meant if I said that famous this shit just got real shot that Michael Bay has become renowned for uh, was first uh, first used in Bad Boys, also appears in this movie, released in May 95, one month after Bad Boys. Was it really a month after Bad Boys? Is Bad Boys that old? April 95. Do you know the, the shot I'm talking about, though? You know, it's, it, like, it starts on his face and it zooms and circles around him. And, you know, in Michael Bay, they always stand up. And they stand up in... Usually a little bit in the, the aspirin bottle. Oh, no, it's actually earlier. It's when he goes, it's Christmas, oh. you could steal City Hall. And he's like, oh, shit, they're going to steal City Hall. It's pretty much the same shot. Done better. John has a pistol taped to his back under the sandwich board that saves his life in the same way as the pistol taped to his back in the original Die Hard. He also ends up with an old police issue 38 special with the same two bullets he saved the day with in Die Hard and manages to dispatch a helicopter with them. Um, there are two men originally uh, cast as Simon... Anybody want to name either of them? No Googling. No Googling, that's cheap. <laughs> Wasn't me. Was I one didn't of read them... this, I can't remember. By any chance, would one of them been Alan Rickman mm. as a twin brother? Oh. No, that's not mentioned. But that would have been quite... Uh, maybe a bit of a crowbar. Everyone would be like, all right, who would have known that uh, Hans had a twin? Yeah, good point. Uh, Mind you, brother's not much better. Yes, well, it, uh, it's a crowbar plot move, but uh, David Thewlis was originally going to play Simon. I think he'd have done a good job, but he's not as magnetic as Jeremy Irons. Uh, but Sean Connery was John McTiernan's very first choice for the role of Simon Gruber. He turned down the role, saying he didn't want to play such a diabolical villain. He then went on to play the main villain in the utterly diabolical... No, don't say it. Don't say it. Avengers! Oh! And we don't mean the DC Comics Avengers, which oh. is cool. The uh, the the one with John Steed. Uh, <laughs> Eddie is on's first movie appearance. Speaking of terrible, terrible, terrible movies, an early script that was rejected involving the villains hijacking a luxury cruise liner was eventually used for... Speed 2. Uh, 
It's the only way that could go was speed two. Yep. <laughs> oh, by the way, um, one of the main reasons I was worried about changing my name to Alex Shaw from Paul Shaw, which I did in 2000, sorry, in 1999, was that the uh, Jason Patrick's main character in Speed Two is named Alex Shaw. <laughs> like, will people remember? No, they won't. <laughs> that to me. The line spoken by McLean: "Smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo is relevant." How? Isn't it some sort of reference to what he says in the first one on the radio to nope. Hans? No. Nope. Isn't someone watching Captain Kangaroo in the first one? Nope. It's actually not from Die Hard. It's another film. Oh, no, 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 no. Cast your mind back in in case of watching Die Hard about a year to Pulp Fiction. I keep hearing you're concerned about my happiness, but all that thought you're giving me is conscience, I guess. If I were walking in your shoes, I wouldn't worry enough. Are you and your friends are worried about? Bruce Willis is driving a car down the street. He's just shot John Travolta and gotten away, he believes, scot-free uh, after getting hold of his gold watch. And then he sees Marcellus Wallace and runs him over. The song that he's singing along to is... Sucking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. Now don't tell me I've nothing to do. Also starring Samuel L. Jackson. Similarly, in the scene where Zeus is trying to get out of going with McLean on the trip across the city, he gets up explaining, I'm not hopping through hoops for some psycho. That's a white man with white man's problems. You deal with him. Let me know when he crosses 110th Street. The line across 110th Street is a reference to the song of the same name that was played in the Ooh. film Jackie Brown, which also starred Samuel L. Jackson. It's basically where Harlem begins. In okay, I have seen Jackie Brown, and I should have known that. Awesome film. In the German version of the first Die Hard movie, the terrorists were changed to a radical Irish terrorists. They got out hands because of the dubbing. Producers didn't want to have German terrorists. In the German dubbing of Die Hard 3, however, they decided to adapt the original background after all, and the late terrorist leader is called by his original name, Hans Gruber, which must have confused the fuck out of Germans. Who is this Hans? Why have we never seen this movie? His name was Mickey O'Brien back in the original. He dropped out Mickey O'Brien? Why why is they showing that Mickey guy? I can't do German anymore, but why is he showing that Mickey (laughs) guy? Why is he called Hans now? They're fucking with us. Who directed this movie? They're lying to us. Holly may not be in this movie, but her presence is felt by that very absence. John is clearly deeply depressed and lonely. It's the only person who could ever put up with him. He's been out of his life for a year. He describes their situation as being sort of separated, but notably still wears his wedding ring. I say again, it's a damn shame that the inept writers of Die Hard 4 couldn't include her in some form. The Die Hard series has been available on DVD everywhere for many years, all domestically distributed by Fox. However, outside the US, only Die Hard with a Vengeance was distributed by Buena Vista, Disney's only Die Hard. This led to very few complete box sets and the depressing fact that Die Hard 3 is not available on Blu-ray in the UK, while the other three are, even Die Hard 4. Everywhere else in the world, this is not the case. You can get a German version, you can get an American version, you can get a Dutch version, you can get an Australian version. The American Blu-ray of Die Hard 3 is Region A, so won't play on standard British BD players like the PS3. The Australian version, however, is Region B, and will. So I need to have a chat with one of our Australian listeners to work out a way to get me one, because I want me Die Hard with a Vengeance. 
even if we did get a UK Blu-ray disc, it might still be the edited version released theatrically and on video and DVD over here in order to scrape a 15 certificate. This has several cuts, which we've mentioned already, including the bloody elevator shooting. Surely in this day and age, that would probably still only get you a 15. I think these days it might, but... But still, I mean, uh, I, I watched uh, Welcome to the Jungle on Blu-ray the other day, and the, it was actually the American cut. So every time he jumps up and does a double kick to the chest of someone, they cut. Unbelievable. Hmm. So I can't get the UK Blu- Blu-ray disc. Huh. Apparently, there was a mistake when they got it on there, and it's, it's, a, it's a botched DV, uh, Blu-ray release. <laughs> That's not good. Okay. I was going to say, because, I mean, Jaws has been reclassified recently. Yeah. It's, it's a 12 now. What was there before? 15? It was a 15. Mm. My version's still the 15 one. Well, oh, mine's the 12, sorry. If you've got the double disc box one, it's uh, it's the extras of the 15. Oh, right, right. The um, original uh, video version of Die Hard 2 was a 15. I think the original, some of the early DVD releases were too, but then they released the un- uncut version in the UK. We'll talk next week about the differences between PG-13 and R-rated releases, because it's, it's very pertinent regarding Die Hard 4. Get two, don't buy two. Get dialed one, dialed with a vengeance. So that's all you need because those two feel like. <laughs> well, if you watch them back to back, I should imagine they feel like they slot together perfectly. Yeah, yeah. But Probably, this is what yeah. happens when you let the right director mm. and the right sound guy and everything come back together, and it works. Uh, well, there's a new writer for Die Hard uh, Three, but uh, it was it worked still. Yeah, but. <laughs> I think the director probably has a bit more influence over the way things feel. Mm. Yes, Because yeah. he's the guy that puts the pictures there. Yeah, so. yeah. Ultimately, just everything else was just the words in people's mouths. But uh, it does it's, it does feel significantly different from the first two films. But um, that's not a bad thing. It feels a bit fresher. Well, I think that's a, a good thing, because Die Hard 2 was... was as we said, was basically the same thing. It was John in a yeah, everything, cramped yeah. space. I think the best with way of describing it is that everything good was from the earlier movie and it didn't do anything yeah. new. Yeah. Whereas with this one, instead of instead of space, you know, a lack of space being being the, the what provides the tension, it, it's time. They've got all the space of Manhattan, which is a fucking huge place. Yeah. And Central Park itself is bloody massive. Mm. But it's time. It's constantly being the chasing after chasing their tails. They're constantly trying to keep ahead of of Simon trying to get to the next bomb and the next bomb and the next bomb yeah rather than trying to get out of one small space into another shaft another bit of ducting or whatever yeah which which I think because it, it changes the focus slightly makes it fresher and rather than just retreading the same old ground because there's only so many um, air duct cliches that you can put into a film really mm. um, yeah they do manage to fit one in this one that McLean, this the, you know how to flag someone down yeah, that was, to be honest, that was a bit of a, pardon, pardon, a bit of a damp spot in the film for me. <laughs> it was a bit shit, really, wasn't it? The whole surfing on the truck and then going at the water spout and stuff was a bit, it was a and, bit naff, really. And yeah. I don't know. It looks terrible now. It really looks terrible. It does, yeah. 
But to be honest, I mean, that was that was another ejector seat moment, really, wasn't it? It was kind of stuck in there as a, a bit of an action sequence. And oh, my wife mentioned actually that uh, the the ejector seat bit in Die Hard Two. Surely he wouldn't have anywhere near amount the right amount of time required for his chute to open and actually slow him down before he crashed to earth. It's supposed to be you're supposed to eject in the air, not on the ground. So. I think I think ejector seat you you would it would open it would slow you down but I don't think you'd be able to get up and, and walk away as he did. I mean, yeah, rather yeah. pilot to have crashed on the ground and ejected and, and walked away. But just going in ejector seat is going to completely floor you. You're not going to be able to. Yeah. You're going to be you know probably lying down for a good few days. I mean it, it compresses your spine by an inch for fuck's sake. That's not something you can just walk away from really. Oh, another thing sounds uh, painful. Another thing she mentioned is, is that he he gets injured in this one. He never really seems to get injured so much in two. It's he he escapes things a, a lot more in two. It's like he uh, dodges the plane and he dodges the other plane and then he he dodges the bullets and then he dodges he rolls out of the way of bullets. But he never really gets There's fucked no, up in two. There's no broken glass moment. Yeah. There's no moment of weakness. There isn't really that that sense of of real weakness in this one. I mean, the closest thing would be when they're tied up and he's ripping a piece of wire out of his own uh, shoulder with his teeth. <laughs> Lovely. Mind you, he never really gets that messed up in four. Oh, of course he doesn't. No, no, no. Just, oh, he gets back up out of something that would have killed him. Mm. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Save it for next week. Save it for next week. <laughs> so, I've got lots of little little tiny flashes of what I'm going to put myself in for next weekend. Oh, God. <laughs> Matt's it's, just going to turn up next week and go, what the fuck was that? I that think Die Hard. It's, it's not as bad as we're making out, but then I haven't seen it for a while, so maybe it'll be worse. <laughs> I mean, I saw it in the same uh, summer as I saw Transformers, and both of them, I came away going, it wasn't quite as much of a train wreck as I thought. I mean, I, I've seen Batman and Robin recently. That is a film that makes you go, I wish I was dead. If I was dead, I couldn't have seen that. I would be dead, and then I would have only Void. But what if I was a ghost forced to watch that film over and over again inside a theatre, which I couldn't get out of? And, yeah, you, you have nightmares about being made to watch films that are that bad. Die Hard 4 is just popcorn trash. Yeah, even... Die, uh, sorry, not Die Hard. Uh, Batman and Robin is so bad, George Clooney turned around and said he killed the role of Batman. Yeah, he's being way too hard on himself there. There's so many things wrong with that fucking film. He actually wasn't a bad Batman. It was just a shame about the rest. Of He's an even film. better. I mean, he was a he was a bad Batman, but he was a good Bruce Wayne. Yes, except for the head bobbing. We'll talk about that when we when we get to the film. His head like a fucking head knocker. In He's, that a bubble. He's a bobblehead. I was counting. I was like, that's 17 times that his head is bobbled <laughs> on top of his body. What is wrong with this guy? Okay, so let, let's wrap up Die Hard 3. I mean, and I'll, we could talk at length about the action set pieces, but they're action set pieces. There's that brilliant bit when they're racing through the the, the you know the park on in the cab, and there's a sense of consequences in the in their actions and a sense of space in New York where it's not just charging about the place for fun. No, I mean, I mean, a great point of that is the the crash sequence of the subway car. Yes, yeah, that was, uh, and that was something that really was going to be unavoidable, and that that they, um, you know, that they were trying their absolute best to deal with. But uh, and, the, and the interesting thing about that is now, I would assume that if they did that sequence nowadays, hmm. they would have killed a few people. You listen after that, no one died in that. Yeah, no, because of McLean's actions. It was an, originally intended by Simon to go off in the middle of the train, which would have caused a bloodbath. But obviously, with uh, with John chucking it out the back, it blew up behind the train and propelled it forwards into the side. Uh, no one died because they said no one died. 
But in reality, I think someone would have got badly injured in that. Someone really got squashed. Yeah. It would have been McLean, because that's another of the really moments when he pops out the top of it. And, you go, and he's fine. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the water spout moment when he goes up the spout and you go, and he, he lands and he gets a spout. <laughs> Down came the rain and washed McLean away. <laughs> There's great banter in this film as well. The back and forth. It's it's possibly better than all the other three films because because he's constantly got Zeus there to to, to argue with. It's that there's there's none of that in in any of the others really. I mean, it, this, they sort of attempt it in Die Hard Four, but I don't remember anything from it. And it's really quotable as well. I just found myself talking along with it the whole time. Again, much like well, this one is this one's much more of a, a buddy movie. Mm. And obviously, the, the the first two weren't at all because it was basically just John with, mm. with other. You could say Al was a buddy, was a but he was more of a connection in Die Hard. Yeah, I mean, they weren't together. They weren't constant, and they never argued. Sharing the experience, yeah. whereas these two are very much more. It's almost you know going back to the eighties, Lethal Weapon style mm. buddy movie. It, it's got all the you know, all the hallmarks of that, and, mm. and it, it does work very well because again, it changes. The, the, the film from being just another run of the mill sequel to being something a good film a standalone film in its own right mm. I've got one point um, just before we finish go for it um, Simon's plan basically depended on John following all of his instructions Playing and board, all the rest yeah. of it what would have happened if Zeus hadn't saved McLean McLean would have died in Harlem mm-hmm which I, would think, have I think there would have been a contingency plan that Simon would have said, right, McLean is dead, so there's a, you're going to have to find one more officer to find this bomb. And then he would have sent the police to find the bomb for the train, obviously blown the bomb up because he needed to, and then, and then broken the news about the whole um, the, the, the school thing and kept the police busy for the rest of the day. Ultimately, McLean could have died at any point in that. I fairly certain Simon would have still been able to do everything he needed to do. I mean, frankly, he could still have just blown up uh, the bomb anyway, and they'd have gone, oh, shit, it's that mad bomber, and, and because McLean's dead, we don't know what to do. And the police would still have been running around chasing a shadow. Yeah, but his justification for it was, you know, the, the alleged justification was the revenge motive. Mm. And it just, it, I don't know, it just always struck me as a bit odd that, he's, that he he'd have less... Ab- into Harlem yeah. with a, a sandwich board on that was going to get him killed. Yeah. There was no doubt about that. It just seems a bit of an odd way to start, really. <laughs> yeah, to work I up think, to it, maybe. <laughs> I think that bit was probably done because when the FBI guys turned up and say, it's actually Gruber, he mm. was the brother of Hans Gruber. This yep. is why McLean was killed. It was revenge, and now he's just taking in revenge on the city because he's a madman yeah I, I'm fairly certain that uh, Simon would have had he, he seems one step ahead oh, smugly so again he's he never really seems to get angry so he's a, he's less of a, cre- a great villain than Hans I am an exceptional thief Mrs. McLean and since I've just graduated to kidnapping you should have more respect he never seems to you never see his human side he's just smug and smirking and, and always one step ahead he's still way better than Colonel Colonel what's his name that Stuart. guy Stuart. Stuart yeah who was just smug and boring um, no, we're not even going to mention Oliphant ugh who was just boring and boring and grumpy and boring. Which is, which is really stunning if you ever watch Justified. Yeah. We'll talk about that next we week. Hitman bad or... Oh, him. <laughs> no, he's not as bad as he is in Hitman, but he's borderline. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> mm. I might be busy next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah stunning with a lot of confidence here. But, uh, no, I mean, if you actually look at him, the way that um, 
uh, Jeremy Irons plays his performance, he's, he's watched Alan Rickman and he, he, do, he does have a few similar mannerisms. And you can imagine them sort of as brothers when they were kids being, I'd imagine like young Niles and Fraser Crane. Yeah, only evil. Hans obsessed with his model making and stuff and Peter all obsessed with making, with chemistry, getting on each other's tits. I may not have liked my brother, but that's a difference when it comes to some Irish flatfoot chucking your brother off a yeah. building. Yeah, your brother was an asshole. He was. He was an asshole. You've got his number. Yeah. He's good. And my daughter um, watched the very beginning of this while we were having lunch, and she went, <gasps> Scar! <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Irons is going to be forever known as Scar, isn't he? Mm. Well, is it the most people would have... It's the, the film most people would have seen him in. True. Shouldn't, surely isn't dead ringers. Life's just not fair. You see, I, I shall never be king, and you <laughs> shall never see the light of another day. Adieu. <laughs> oh, that was today. Oh, I feel simply awful. I shall practice my cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's that, you're so weird. You have no idea. <laughs> have you seen a David Cronenberg movie named Dead Ringers? Sit a little bit closer. Who's the man supposed to give you that good time feeling on vibes? It shows amounts and counts. How I bounce without negativity, but yet I still turn it out. Finally, the ending was not the first one shot, and was actually the third one planned. The original planned ending that was never shot involved the bad guys on a plane opening the suitcase bomb, as in the one that uh, Zeus gives to those security guards, and Simon asking if anyone has a four-gallon jug. <laughs> that, that would be a bit of an anticlimax, because people want a big explosion. And why were they opening the suitcase bomb? What are you looking at and go, hang on, didn't I leave that in, in a park somewhere? I, I don't think Simon would have done that. I think someone else would have opened it and gone, oh, is it? I don't know. They'd have figured out some way. I mean, for fuck's sake, there's always a way to get someone to do something dumb in a movie. Pay <laughs> <laughs> them enough money. There's a bit in American Pie 3, The Wedding, where Stifler eats some dog shit. Oh, don't remind me of it's that. It's awful. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Um, I mean, that's obviously the south side of the saint. But yeah, the, the, the amount of um, information we're given that it's an excuse enough for Stifler to eat the shit doesn't add up. He's trying to get a wedding ring back, and then some woman comes over and goes, oh, is that a chocolate treat? Can I have it? And rather than going, oh, there's something in it, and chucking it away, he eats it. And he's like, yeah, no, I, I don't buy that. I don't think Stifler would do that. It's just, you know, he got, he got weed on in the second one, and he drank, he drank jizz in the first one. <laughs> They're just going through all the bodily waste and, uh, and making sure that... Can you call jizz that- waste? <laughs> and just making sure that Stifler ingests or is covered in them. It's just a, that is one of the biggest problems with the American Pie movie. There mm. is no mind to it. Yeah. There's no brain. And that is a big shame. First one was quite good, but, uh. I just prefer the second one, but. Yeah? Mm. Well, the third one's terrible. We can at least agree on that one. Yeah. The second ending, the alternative ending, involves a dejected, disgraced McLean tracking Simon down months after the events in New York and forcing him at gunpoint to play a game of McLean Says, Russian roulette with a rocket launcher. This showed a sadistic side to John that few were comfortable with, so it was scrapped in favour of a much better showdown between McLean on the ground with two bullets and Simon in a helicopter with an M60, which was much more of a diehard one ending. But you can tell when you watch it that it was a, a different ending to the one they'd planned. 
I don't know why. There's these little hallmarks like they've come back to this several months after they finished filming, haven't they? It feels like it. It's a movie yeah. of three halves. <laughs> but after you sent me the link to the um, alternative bedding, I'm glad they changed it. Oh, hell yeah. It's terrible. If you watch it on YouTube, just go Die Hard uh, with a Vengeance, alternative ending, or Die Hard 3, alternative ending. He meets him in a bar, and he's all smug, and he's sort of wearing a long coat, and he doesn't look like McLean at all. He gives him a Chinese rocket launcher and says, you've got to shoot, you've got to fire, press the trigger, and it'll either hit you or me. It's just nonsensical. But uh, apparently that was going to be the actual end of Simon Says. And I think they, I'm glad they changed that. I'm really glad they changed that. Yeah, it's well, no, not a die-hard ending. Yeah. I can see what they were trying to do. I mean, they are trying to try to illustrate the fact that, that Simon had basically ruined McLean's life yeah. entirely. And McLean was, was beyond... Off the deep end, yeah. Absolutely. And he'd basically just given up because he'd been, in, been, felt he'd been betrayed by the, by the NYPD and the FBI and so forth. Mm. He no longer felt loyal to, to that way of life. But it would have been a fairly ham-fisted way of doing it. Yeah. But it doesn't help that it's clearly not finished off because it's the like you know it's it's not been the the post production has not been done on it. Yeah, it looks just a bit so. pretty ropey. So that doesn't help. But yeah, it was fairly ham fisted. It was just rushed as well. It just seemed to happen mm. far too quickly with no real. It feels like oh, a different. Here's John. Oh, there's a missile through your chest. No. Right, and there we go. It feels like a different <laughs> movie. That sort of thing would happen in Sin City, but not Die Hard. You know. Mm. Yeah. 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 But in the end, John wins with careful application of his two bullets, says his catchphrase, yippee motherfucker, and we end on a hopeful note as he calls Holly. Considering the follow-up 12 years later, it should have ended there, but more on that next week. Unfortunately. Mm. Neil, do you want to... I mean, everybody knows about Game Burst, but do you want to pimp it one more time? <laughs> I'll pimp it one more time, because in March I'll have something new to pimp, so don't okay. worry. Uh, you can find me at gameburst.co.uk where we review the weekly gaming news on a Sunday for 30 minutes and we bring you a roundtable or a retro replay or even a quiz on the Thursday. Now, as you may have gathered, uh, Neil and I have seen Die Hard 4 and uh, Matt has not. So he is going to be coming to that film fresh, watching it this weekend, and then we'll be doing the show the following day. So uh, he will be giving brand new reactions to Die Hard 4, whereas we'll be sitting on two, three years of resentment. <laughs> He's so looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Above and beyond. <laughs> Indeed. Well done. Thank you very much, Matt, and thank you for your continued uh, sacrifice for this show. It's, it's, you're very welcome on here. Gotta watch that drinking during the day. Bad for your health. Would you care to join me? No. I quit. You're looking remarkably alive, John. <laughs> Fit even. How is Carl? How are my friends in the NYPD? Well, I was fired from the NYPD. Cops trying to save my pension. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah, the feds thought I had something to do with the robbery. They even made me take a lie detector test. <laughs> oh, yes. Now, that is funny. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Come on, John. Just enjoy life's little ironies. How is your black friend, um... Zeus? Yeah, Zeus. He's good. He's good. His kids made the honor roll. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. You have children, don't you, John? Two. As soon as I'm done here, I'm going to go spend Christmas with him. And what is the point of your visit to our little backwards country? How's your girlfriend? The yeah, short blonde hair? She around? Let's just say... 
conversation was a trifle limited. <laughs> you fucked everybody, didn't you? Yeah. Me, the feds, your terrorist friends, your girlfriend. The bad motherfucker. You got away with it. Oh, yes. Tell all these people to get out of here. Right now. Sincere. Pass the cab. So, do you have a headache? You know, I, I saved you a couple. I traced the batch number to a German pharmaceutical company who shipped that bottle to a little pharmacy right down the street. I'm a cop, remember? So you see, Simon, you must learn to enjoy life's little ironies. I brought you a present. Present? Christmas present. I'm sure you've seen these before. It's a Chinese rocket launcher. I'm gonna play a little game. Remember your game, Simon says? Well, now we're gonna play McLean says. Here's how the game works. I ask you some questions. As long as you answer them, you don't have to pull the trigger. But you've removed the directional arrows and the sights. How do we know which way to fire? That's what makes a game so exciting. Here we go. McLean says, a plane crash on the Texas-Oklahoma border. Where do they bury the survivors? You don't bury the living. Very good. You can turn that whenever you want. McLean says a cowboy rides 18 hours into town and 18 hours back all on Sunday. How does he do that? The horse is called Sunday. Very good. McLean says three years ago I busted two robbery suspects. The youngest was the father of the other one's son. How the fuck does that work? You're a husband and wife. Very good. Practicing. Here comes the bonus round. Good guy and a bad guy are sitting in a bar. The bad guy brings a bottle of brandy. The good guy brings a bomb. The only problem is the bad guy neglects to bring something that could have saved his life. What does he forget? What does he forget, Simon? Forget, Simon. The antidote to the brandy. Oh, I'm sorry. That is the wrong fucking answer. Game over. Push the trigger. Push the trigger, Simon. Make up your mind and press the trigger, Simon. Forgot his flag jacket. That's what he forgot. The guy. The main theme for Die Hard with a Vengeance is. No, I've forgotten shit. It's called When Johnny Comes Marching Home. Oh, yes. It's an Irish song made famous in America by Patrick Sarsfield Gilmore, a.k.a. Lewis Lambert, in 1863 during the American Civil War. I never knew it was Irish. It's always something I do associate when I hear that song with the sort of Civil War era. I just yeah. didn't realise it was Irish. Originally it was, but kind of it's it's in keeping with obviously McLean's Irish thing, since he is Irish. But uh, but yeah, so that's the music we're going to end on. We will see you next week for Die Hard Four. Pointless. And then the week after that, we'll be coming back and we will be talking zombies. Not, Woohoo! Not a movie. But a book, The Zombie Survival Guide by Max Brooks, and the follow-up World War Z the next week. So we will see you for a rubbish film next week, and the week after, zombies, and we're done he had business. To, he had to tell you, folks, he had to give you some hope. Yes, yes. But, uh, but also to prepare, folks, because I would 
strongly suggest that you guys uh, read that book. Not you guys. Uh, I, know, I know you have, Neil. But you're going to be our control guest, Matt, so you'll be the voice of the listener that we can quiz you on what you would do in each zombie situation. Cool. Bring a very practical head. If anybody comes along and goes, oh, I'd bring a lightsaber to a zombie fight, I'll just get out. <laughs> you're dead. You've been eaten already. <laughs> okay. So this is Die Hard with a Vengeance. We'll see you next week for Die Hard Four Point Less. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Neil Taylor. And I've been Matt Ramsey. Happy trails. Happy trails.